Hey, good people. This is Jamila. And this is Jester. And you are listening once again to Music and We. This episode is dedicated to someone who is special to me to this day. She's no longer physically here, but she was a staple in my life. She was a staple in a community I had a job in. She was the old guard of a community. If anybody knows anything about gentrification, you know how tied the old guard to a community is. And when they go away, things just just change and not always for the better, usually not for the better. Communities tend to pull apart and you can live somewhere but not talk to your neighbor. That's one of the representations of gentrification I cannot stand. But Judy, she's my Aunt Judy, who is not an aunt by blood, but I considered her to be an aunt to me, someone I love dearly. She was a person who had substance abuse problems. She was always physically ill, but she never let that stop her. I told her every time I saw her and she the same, we always said we loved each other. We gave each other hugs. And when I told her I was leaving the city, she said, well, don't forget about me. And I said, I could never forget about you, Judy. The last time I saw her was a week before she transcended. I was so distraught by that. I ended up arranging slash co-arranging a vigil for her slash procession and a friend of mine she arranged all these people to show up and I didn't know that so we rode our bikes there and there were all these people and I was in shock and so we just and we just shouted our love for Judy and hoped that she heard it and she was such a beautiful spirit a lot of people didn't like her candor. They didn't like her openness. They didn't like the fact that she didn't suffer fools. She was, she did not have it with anybody. If she didn't like you, she would let you know it. She's old school. And some people didn't like her and they called the cops on her. That was just really sad. And there were, there were people that I knew who called the cops on her and I never forgave them for that. And I know we're getting ready to talk about what is sacred and everything and I know forgiveness is a quality if you are a spiritual person but I just know in my heart I cannot forgive that that you would call the cops on someone especially someone who's of African descent knowing the history of the police with people of African descent and these are two people of European descent calling the cops on her I I just I couldn't handle I was it. I've never forgiven that either. And yes. I don't think you have to forgive anybody <laughs> of nothing, by the way. It's up to you to do that if you want. You know, they say, oh, well, if you, if you don't forgive, it just makes you bitter. Well, some bitterness guides like dust. So, um, <laughs> I'm not going to just <laughs> accept that. So, yeah. No, but she sounded like a wonderful woman. We honor she you. And she sang this song all the time, and I have written about this, but she sang this song about walking with her angels, and she had such a beautiful voice, and you could hear it for blocks and blocks away. One of her legs was weaker, and she was just shuffled down the street going, I'll be walking with my angels, and she would just repeat the same lyrics, and I just, I'd be riding my bike maybe at one in the morning, or 12 in the afternoon and she would just be singing that and it would just resonate it was just so beautiful to me and she had such a beautiful spirit and so we definitely dedicate this episode to judy phillips and we hope 
wherever she is now, she's living her transcendent life. (laughs) Oh, Judy, I miss you so much. This episode is about sacredness and what is sacred in relation to Prince and Michael. And I wanted to ask you, Jesse, what is a song that comes to mind when you think of what is sacred to Prince and Michael? A song that I think is sacred to both of them that they made. Whatever you feel is sacred to. Oh, with Michael, I think of Heal the World, Mm -hmm. our childhood even, for different reasons. But those two in particular seem to display a sense of you know, longing for betterment, better development, and also understanding of what childhood does to an individual. And I think he really thought that meant a lot to him. And with Prince, Prince, um, a song that's sacred. I'm not going to go with Purple Rain. Everybody want to know Purple I'm not, nope, not Purple Rain. But I would say The Last December. And mm-hmm. also a song, uh, The Love We Make. I think those two songs are sacred for different reasons, but they both share a sense of questioning yourself for, again, kind of like with Michael, you know, better development and doing it because you're guided by something greater in a sense, or that you just want love to be manifested. Obviously, with the love we make, you hear it in the title, but the lyrics are, he says even, sacred is the prayer that asks for nothing, which is one of my favorite lyrics. It's just a good reflection to I think, yeah, those two songs. I can go on and on with Michael and uh, Prince. I think they're both very big on giving sacredness or at least respecting it and acknowledging it as a source. You know, some things are just reserved for, I don't even know how to describe it, but yeah. What about you? I feel like I'm going on. No, go on, go on, go on. I go on all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah, those songs in particular. But Michael and Prince, they both, the measure of their sacredness and how they wrote about it, I think, obviously, Prince, you know, he he mentioned God by name most of the time. He had no problem. I mean, a lot of that changed when he became a Jehovah's Witness, which is another conversation, which is something Michael and Prince share, too, which, I mean, that's not what this podcast is about in totality, but I think that's an interesting area for uh, Michael and Prince, how they both kind of, with Michael obviously being born into a family that were Jehovah's Witnesses, his mom, Catherine, and going to the Kingdom Hall. I mean, I think Michael and Latoya probably embrace it a bit more than his other siblings, but well, Reby is still a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, it's true. Reby is still a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, we can go on and on talking about the JWs. Prince, you know, he he embraced them as well towards the end. But I do think when I say towards the end, I mean, that's not actually I don't know if I should say towards the end. But it seemed at one point he was more embracing of it when he first came around to it around 2002, One Night Alone. Mm -hmm. Then he made it clear that I'm a Jehovah's Witness. But then the years passed and it was still probably a big piece of his life, but it didn't seem to be as preachy for some if you're just describing it to the date because at one time prince would go out his way he'll be singing purple rain and be like open up your bibles and i saw that tour <laughs> yeah see see you were at the one that i'm on tour see? 
So mm-hmm. and yeah. I know a lot of people were a bit hesitant to really embrace it because it felt preachy because they thought, oh, you're pre, you know, you're, you're not allowing us to believe what we believe. And he obviously had a mission to preserve a sense of sacredness. And it was through sex, too. He thought sex was sacred. So, I mean, right. I'm saying songs like Love We Make, but you can think of a song like Shush. That's probably sacred to him, too, <laughs> or some other. The most beautiful mm-hmm. girl in the world, Adore, even. You know, just the yeah. act of bonding and loving someone. Crystal Ball, there are a lot of examples. And Michael, too. I mean, I think with Michael, his sacred messaging came a lot through activism or just something that dealt with a unified consciousness, in a sense. So you think of a song like even History or... Mm-hmm. I said, heal the world, cry, we are the world even, what more can I give? Those are good examples of songs that definitely put a spotlight on the emotion of love and understanding those around us and respecting each other, irrespective of the differences we see. And also, again, understanding our childhood. It was a reason why Michael was the way he was, and it was because of his childhood. So... Yeah. All right. That's all I'm going to say right now. Now you got (laughs) to let me know. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I would say in terms of honoring the sacred for Prince, I would say way back home. I'm always going to return to that song. I felt for him, the sacredness is transcending the physical, transcending the material and returning to the most high. I think that was what was of highest value to him. And he represented that in some of his art, particularly in the earlier parts of the years when he talked about love God and he had songs like, let's pretend we're married. And he spoke to that God connection. There was a period where it was implicit, but he didn't outright say God. I think in the earlier parts uh, of his career, he mentioned it and particularly in the later parts of his career but the beginnings of the npg you didn't hear that as much it didn't seem to me as prominent as the earlier parts and the later parts of his artistic career with michael i would say in particular we've had enough in place with no name i think these are songs i'm always going to return to because even more so than prince i think Michael had a life is sacred kind of lyrical content. Michael focused more on how life in the material world is sacred. Prince focused more on how life in the spiritual world was more sacred. And that gets to a deeper conversation about deem is sacred. Prince deemed that sex was the highest form of having a sacred life as possible. Sex led to creating life in some cases. That was all sacred to him. Michael always talked about what influenced him and inspired him. He always talked about trees and kids and animals. And these are figures in the material world. Michael always said that children were the highest representation of God. Children are still in a physical form. So Michael honored the physical in that case more than Prince, just from what I can see lyrically are in interviews they gave. That's such well, an interesting perspective. I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our listeners are like, ah, oh, hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but a place with no name, I think that's 
when Michael began to have the realization that whatever manifestation of a physical life, that wasn't based in reality. I really do think with Dancing the Dream, you started seeing a formation of that. But I think particularly after 2005, you started seeing specific change in how he thought about spirituality, how he thought about life and its physical manifestations. He talked about, you know, always reading the Bible, always reading it to his kids, having it be a huge factor in his life. But again, from what I could see, even though he espoused the values of JW, even after he left, he started seeing things in a less material fashion and saw trees as being manifestations of God, like all sorts of life being representations of God and not just religion. The word of God can be interpreted in many different ways. And that's what you started seeing with Dancing the Dream. But I think with Prince, he said, don't cry for me when I leave because I'm going to a better place. This life is just this one thing. And again, in Way Back Home, he never wanted a typical life, a scripted role, a trope life. All I want to do, my mission in life was just to go back home and to find my way there. And everything I did in this life was an aspect of a journey to get there. I made some mistakes along the way, but my mission here, and I don't think he's being messianic or anything, but I think he's doing the same thing that a lot of people who are of a higher spiritual plane they do it. You know, I was set here to deliver some messages and doing it in a way that's humble. I honestly, as many compliments as Prince gave himself, I think for all intents and purposes, he was really humble. I really do. I don't see him as being. He, he was very well aware of his uh, talents and he didn't seem to hoard them. So, yeah, I would say he was humble and. Those connections you're making are mind-blowingly fascinating. And I would agree. I mean, you're, you're right in terms of Prince consistently transcending. I mean, each year was always something new, going beyond not being reminded of even two years ago <laughs> or even a year ago. It's like, oh, that was a year ago because he's always working. Fossilizing that, that kind of, I'm not even sure if that's the word, but he... There's so many songs he has where he he's kind of calling attention that you mentioned way back home. And then I just thought of seven. Seven mm-hmm. is a very sacred song to him. And then still would stand all time, like throughout his career, actually. You're right. There are a lot of examples. Love that will be done, even just of him going beyond and and conceptualizing it. So and Michael, the way you just explained it was spot on as well. He he had a very specific way of how he dressed it whether it was through the trees or through animals or through children it was yeah it was it was unique to him what do you think of their spiritual evolution i know we touched on that a little bit i feel as if dancing the dream was the beginning of michael's spiritual evolution and his idea that religion was a way of limiting us Whereas Prince, even though he converted to being JW, I really think his spirituality was evolving. You look at a lot of things he spoke about in the latter part of his life. The evolution was very clear to me. And a lot of people say, oh, third eye. Oh, he's practicing. 
this crap Illuminati all of this. But if you look at you look at African spiritual practices, which a lot of people would say was satanic. If you look at a lot of the things he's talked about throughout the years, people said Prince was the son of the devil. All of these things people have said about him, but he's always been consistent about his spiritual beliefs. And you can wrap it in a package of religion, but I think in my view, Prince was beyond the limiting factors of religion. Religion also signifies habit. And so people go to religion either because it's something their ancestors did or because it's something to help them in their lives. How many people go beyond this idea of religion and into a different relationship with God, the most high, whatever people choose to call that factor? I say the most high. What do people do beyond that? It's like saying, okay, we're going to make change by voting, but what do you do beyond that? What systems do we use to improve our lives? And I think, again, Prince evolved over time. I think his relationship with God, the most high, the universe, whatever people want to call it again, I think that relationship has always been consistent. There were different manifestations of it. I think Michael's evolution in terms of his spirituality was more pronounced because he was more connected to the material. Prince, I'm going to call him a rainbow child. And if you look at the the definitions of indigo children, etc., indigo children, rainbow children are higher spiritual beings. I am going to go out there and say Lauren Hill, I think, is a higher spiritual being and people who deal with the material world predominantly. Oh, she's, she's always late for concerts, this and that. I think out of respect to people who pay for the tickets, she should be on time. But on a spiritual level, I understand why she's late and she's pretty upfront with it saying, you know, I have to be in my spiritual moment in order to feel comfortable with being here. So she has to deal with teetering between those two worlds and print he was dealing with hollywood he was dealing with all these evil people in the industry and he was able to float past them and not be affected by them to me that's a huge sign that you were dealing with someone who was of a higher spiritual plane michael was still on earth and he was definitely a spiritual person but he wasn't as advanced he was more easily affected by people like Atami Matola. He was more easily affected by all of these lawsuits and everything. And Prince was just like, whatever. It's also the factor, you know, Michael would always say, bigger the star, bigger the target. Michael was huge and therefore his capital was huge. And he had so many people who wanted him for meat. They just found him to be a cash machine. And they took advantage of him and they would manipulate him. I don't even think a lot of it he could even navigate on his own. He just was subject to it based off of how huge he was. And, you know, he didn't always navigate the best because, I mean, obviously there were situations that could have been handled better. But I think he was also probably just so used to it. And instead of sharpening your radar for judging if a person's character is cool or if they're shady because he had he i mean there was a lot of shady people around michael (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah you think of the mafia and you think of names like i ain't gonna even give no names yet but you know you know the mj community know what i'm talking about it's like 
<laughs> but with Prince, he lived in Minnesota, you see, and he was away right. from it. And he built, he knew earlier on when he got that success from Purple Rain, okay, I have to build a place where I only make music. So he worked on Paisley Park, built it in 1987, and he lived there for pretty much all of his life. I mean, granted, he would travel around the world, but he, for the most part, he lived there. And he was there all the time making music. And I think that's something he had to do for his sanity and just to navigate the shit he went through, especially in the 90s with, you know, Warner Brothers and everything. But when you think of songs, again, you brought up, you know, the sacred. And I'm just, while you were talking, I wrote down a lot of different songs that mention their state of reverence for the sacred or their state of reverence for spirituality. So in the 90s with Prince, I mentioned New World. New World is a song on emancipation. Obviously, this is the album Prince said he was born to make. So there are a lot of spiritual and just interesting messaging on it. Because I feel like you in the 90s, you didn't see it as blunt as it was in the 80s. But there were still shades. Like there were songs like The Holy River. And even in that song, he mentions Jesus by name (laughs) instead of it making, you know, some kind of consciousness thing. Um, And then towards the end in 2012, he did same page different book which mm-hmm. i think is a really relevant one you know it's talking about muslims and the different names that people have for god um and then with michael you think of a song like jam you mentioned you know dancing in a dream but jam i think is definitely i mean it's one of my favorites because he's just he's saying it just for verbatim you know she prays to god to Buddha and she sang the tomit song confusions contradict you know, do we know right from wrong? I mean, I think he was really navigating getting out of, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to say cult. I absolutely concur with you. Yeah. Because in the first verse, he also talks about false prophets. Mm-hmm. So this right. And this is around the time of dancing the dream. Mm-hmm. And this is when in my view he begins to break away from the concept of religion or habit and moving towards a different relationship with the most high and saying you know god is representative in so many things i see around me why are we limiting and this is actually a piece that was in the book why are we limiting our concept of what god is and why do we think that we're right when other people besides us have different experiences of what or who they see God is. And so when he talks about false prophets and then you just mentioned the documents and the things people quote unquote worship. (laughs) I agree that Michael definitely started to see that God was in everything. Like it's not just how we're traditionally taught sort of a pantheistic uh, worldview seeing that God is everything. God is the breath. God can be found in the smile. There's no restriction, you know, for it. Um, I feel like both Michael and Prince sort of understood that at the end of the day, you know, it's all about love. They would always, you know, love each other. Prince was big on love for one another. Um, he even had a charity and dedication of that love, the one love for one another charity giving out clothes and raising money for schools. Um, and then even in the 90s, the early 90s, Live for Love was on his uh, New Power Generation Diamonds and Pearls album. And 
the last song was Live for Love. I mean, even the 80s, like when I feel like in every year, really, he's been talking about God in some way, even if it's not a concept like the Rainbow Children was. And even in the 80s, when he was basically doing whatever he wants to this sexual person and the song like Let's Pretend We're Married, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm in love with God, but I'm going to still have fun. You know, <laughs> he kind of felt like, OK, I'm young. I can just do whatever I want. Um, but then, you know, he got older and his responsibilities changed, how he would sing songs live, who would be listening. So he kind of grew with it. But there was always a sense of them both, I feel. They both kind of knew, regardless of how religious they were. And that definitely played an effect on how they perceived the world around them. What they, I mean, even a song like Temptation that Prince has on Around the World mm. that day, you know, where yeah. he's like, oh, silly man. <laughs> yes. you know you have to love her for the right reasons and you know he obviously heard about lust and he's written about lust animal like lust songs like possessed we can fuck you know like he he really was he went through a lot of um darkness i think when it came to i think accepting sex in his life because he probably was condemned for it and i know with Job's witnesses much like many other Christian-based religions, and even Muslim-based religions. I mean, it's not just Christianity. In general, Western religions are very big against, you know, embracing sex or um, even acknowledging sexuality is, is hard for a lot of people. And Prince, I think, in the beginning, he may have struggled with accepting how sexual he was because, of course, the Bible says that <laughs> you basically have to wait till you're married. So that's why he's like, well, let's pretend. <laughs> let's pretend we're married. We don't have to get married, but let's pretend it. And um, uh, yeah, so and Michael, with Michael, I think Michael also, I believe, I don't think like some have suggested that Michael wasn't sexual. or I don't see why people say that about him. He was clear in his sexuality. And I think he got down and he had sex. But I think his relation to how he perceived sex was probably a bit uh, challenged too, because he was raised in Jehovah's Witness and he probably thought some things were strange because that's what they teach you, you know, that you're not right. really allowed to, to really express that, that that's the devil. And you have to, you know, you're basically taught the only way you can be sexual is if you're married. That's essentially it. And we know how ridiculous that is. I mean, you have hormones, you are attracted. That's not a bad thing. But I do think Michael, after he married Lisa Marie Presley, he became even more like, all right, well, this thing, nothing wrong with this. You know, <laughs> um, with Prince, Prince wasn't on that tip. I mean, he, obviously, he just he just thought sex was, again, sacred. It wasn't just the act of, you know, you meet people like that. They both embraced it to the point where it was sacred enough in their music. And it wasn't just that. It was just, well, in particular Prince, but in general, Michael and Prince, they both were about transcending those narratives and loving and going for it. What would you say they both are in particular, how Michael responded to, you know, think of songs like In the Closet. How was that seeing Michael mm -hmm. go from this? Because people were raised seeing Michael as this, you know, oh, he's so cute, little Michael. And then he... Right. He emerges in the 90s as this sexual being, in a sense. People are even, you are not alone. He, he wanted to be naked in that video. The director mm -hmm. told him, no, Michael, can't have you naked. But 
<laughs> he was nearly close to it. I'm honestly surprised he thought of being naked or even close to it as self-conscious as he was right. <laughs> about himself. So that's a huge deal. But I think being married did change his perspective in a lot of ways. With Prince, and I'm still maintaining my view that Prince's spirituality was on a higher level. And going back to the Oprah Winfrey interview where he merged masculine and feminine energy, he looked to it as being a representation of God. And Michael still up to a point had patriarchal notions of what sex was. I mean, he was raised by George Jackson. Prince did have some of that patriarchy going on, given that he was, he was a Jehovah's Witness at a point and raised seven day Adventist when he was young. So there's still those notions of patriarchal aspects in these religions. But Michael maintained that in a lot of ways. And we're going to get into an episode about sexuality where I'll go more in depth about that. But with In the Closet, I actually thought it was a beautiful short film. It was two willing participants in a mating dance, as opposed to the way you make me feel, where the attention was warranted. Again, we will go into that when we talk about sexuality. (laughs) But just the dance that Michael did with Naomi Campbell, it it was beautiful to me. And it was probably, I'm going to say, with In the Closet, it was literally the one time I thought Michael was sexy. I think Michael Jackson is one of the least sexy people in the world. But In the Closet, I was like, okay, Michael, okay. And you could tell he was proud in some way like he was emerging into this new person and he wanted to publicly show that a lot of people were shocked given they thought he was asexual given they wanted to maintain this clean image for him but he was a man in his 30s at this point and he had a lot of anxieties around relationships things you saw in interviews and in the Glenda Stein conversation we heard a lot of his anxieties And so for him to emerge as this new figure that was more sexual and then going on with his shift about how he felt regarding God and religion. I mean, there were a lot of changes for him at that time. Whereas, again, I think Prince was always consistent. Prince was always, you know, he always merged the masculine and the feminine. You look at. A dirty mind even people are like what is going on here <laughs> and the second album i mean there were a lot of, of feminine qualities to prince people did think he was weird but at the same time people went oh, okay he's good i like his music but michael couldn't get past that his high-pitched voice that he did all of this stuff i think he got a lot more criticism on oh for sure yeah on escaping hyper-masculinity, Prince, that already came with him. And I think, again, because he was such a higher spiritual being, you couldn't stop what he was doing. And so he made that part of his personality, but to me, that was really him. What Michael did with the higher-pitched voice, that was a response to how he grew up, in my view. A lot of what he did was a response to something. What Prince did was just who he was. And (laughs) when you look at their careers and their sexual evolutions, 
I'm I'm maintaining that what Michael did was not only a response to, but a reiteration of patriarchal values. The prince that, you know, yeah, he came, quote unquote, down to earth at some point. So you did see some of that. Purple Rain was a huge factor in patriarchy and misogyny. But then he kind of yeah, yeah, and he kind of just said, okay, that's one thing I'm going to move past that. Because I think he was just so quickly evolving that Purple Rain was just one way of getting his foot in the door so he could do all these other things he wanted to do. He basically forced his managers to make this movie so he could get his foot in the door. And he said, you know, if you don't make this movie with me, I'm going to drop you as managers. Prince had Purple Rain. Michael had Thriller. And people would say those are their greatest albums. And after that, they went downhill. I want to know more of your perspective on that based on the sacred and based on spirituality. Oh, well, I don't agree that these eras that people make the best eras are usually the best ones. I mean, mm-hmm. but people tend to attach success based off of how well the album did and the public's perception. And you made a good point about Purple Rain. I mean, a lot of people were able to relate to just abuse and just kind of that kind of language of wanting validation and accepting the other person. That's probably why it was as successful as it was. Although I don't really like Purple Rain. I never have the movie itself. I love the performance, like of the beautiful ones. That's the performance I usually go to when I think of Purple Rain, but I would never want to watch Purple Rain in any general setting. And a lot of Prince fans are like, ah, you go, how are you a Prince fan? It's like, well, cause you already know if you're a Prince fan of Purple Rain, it's just, Commercial water is just, it's, it's, I can go without it, really. And the people that say, and we were just talking about this before, about how people are quick to say or forget more so that Prince did anything other than the 80s. And, mm. you know, I think that's what happens. After a while, it doesn't matter how successful you become. People generally associate you to the moment where everybody else associated you. You can't. And I think Prince, he didn't really care about not wanting to be um, remembered, so to speak. He would do things sometimes to get people's attention, but then that was it. So when you think of the VMA Awards with the yellow pants, it's like, <gasps> Prince, you're on ass! You know? <laughs> and then, <laughs> I remember first seeing that. I was right. like, what? <laughs> he would do some shit like that, you know, and then he'll go away. <laughs> so it wasn't like he was consistently... And I'm not saying Michael was doing that either. I think Michael was definitely more tactical and he had such a bigger, he was all about keeping mystery and he maintained that too. Prince and Michael, I think, did a great job because even though Michael was so famous, he still, I felt, lived a life that was so unconventional and he wasn't easy to talk to. It wasn't easy to hear what Michael had to say generally because he was very particular about who he talked to and Prince was the same way, but he was a bit more kind of like okay if you're going to talk about something i'm going to give you what to talk about you're not going to ever find me slip you know he was that type of dude so he spent millions and millions on lawyers and shit just to make sure you know the narrative wasn't challenged because if the narrative went against what he wanted it was going to get shut down i mean there was a time i always tell this to the new fans now there was a time you couldn't find these albums you all got on your phone that you can stream no one had them (laughs) unless you knew somebody you know so he it wasn't he he was definitely more so controlled about who was able to access him because he took everything on a personal basis i feel 
like with Prince, he was all about how, what energy did he get from you? If he thought you were cool enough, then you were cool enough, but he wasn't going to experiment on somebody who he didn't think could handle it. And sometimes he was wrong. Sometimes he had people who worked for him that were not trustworthy, but you get that sometimes. But in general, I think the both of them exceeded themselves um, beyond their hallmark albums. I think, in fact, every era that they had, so if you even look at Michael after Bad and you see what history was, and mm -hmm. then you even look at history and see what Invincible looked like, or any time he was just in the public, I think he grew tremendously. And you can see that he wasn't taking the stuff that he took before, and he didn't care. Anytime people would be like, oh, well, you know, Invincible didn't sell as much as Thriller. It's like, yeah, but it's still sold, you know. And with Prince, Prince was like, well, you know, I keep the profit. So Chris Dubois, he's like, you know, I just printed a couple of CDs, and I took the line. And the Chris Dubois, I believe, was like $24, which was, I think, from what I understand, a lot of money back in the 90s, 98, yes. Yes, for it a three-CD thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he, he found ways, and just with the Internet, I think he was really big on, again, transcending every moment. So he tried things. It didn't always work, but at least he attempted. You know, he went on the Internet and he put his music online. The MPG Music Club, for instance, is a fascinating thing that he came up with where people can talk to him and listen to radio shows and buy the music directly, get access to shows, rehearsals, sound checks. You know, mm -hmm. so I feel like Prince made a big deal at making himself accessible to the people who vibed with what he was doing. If you didn't care, if you were like, oh, I don't like it, then it wasn't for you, you know. But then there were a lot of people who was like, yeah, I'm a rainbow child. I like I like it. I might not believe in <laughs> Jehovah, but I'll take what you're saying about loving each other and, and doing well for each other. So I think they in fact, I'm going to say one of my favorite periods from. Uh, Michael is history. History is my favorite album. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because of how just go get the 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 work he had. Like you can tell he was working. That just didn't come together out of nowhere. I'm sure they were, they spent a lot of hours perfecting that album, and just that time for him. You know, he's he's just become a father. He was married, and he stopped being married. So he kind of grew up, and I think a lot of people weren't able to really accept it. And you mentioned in the closet, you know, I do think that's a great example of um, Michael with Naomi and how they basically did something that was loving. It didn't feel forced. It felt natural. Michael, he grew up. He grew up in front of people's eyes and he wasn't what they thought. And he, he did have a bit more responsibility than Prince, but Prince was the type to just do something and it would make news and then people forget about it. <laughs> Because yeah. he would always steer you. I mean, he even has a line where he says, if you tell me to walk a straight line, I'll put on crooked shoes. And <laughs> that's basically how he was. So if you said, Prince, you should do this. And so after Purple Rain, you get around the world in a day, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get something totally different. He's not going to abide. He's resilient to abiding to these strict, you know, walls that you place on him. And he paid the price for it, though. Don't get me wrong. I mean. When he changed his name, a lot of people were like, what the hell? Like, what was with you squiggly? What are you doing? Like, you know, I think people didn't know, even know how to respond to it. It's like, you don't even want us to call you Prince. We can't even call you Prince now. Like, you that bougie to, but he followed whatever he was doing. Mm -hmm. And then he changed his name back. And then when he was Prince again, he was like, oh, I'm not the Prince who was singing Head, by the way. 
You're not <laughs> you're not cursing. <laughs> no more of that. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to get you what you want. I'm here to get you what you need. Something like that. <laughs> but then he slowed down. He got married. And then that divorce happened with him and Manuela. And he was like, oh, shit, well, okay, well, I'm going to just live my life. He never had any children. I think that also, and this is just a brief moment. I don't want to stay on this topic. But I do think, as it is probably common knowledge, when you have children, <laughs> your life changes a lot. You know, Michael being the father of all his children, he didn't, and they didn't have any mothers, but he thought that was okay, which it is okay. You know, hey, I'm a single parent. They're single parents all the time. Women do it. Why can't men? That's how he looked at it, which that's a true statement. <laughs> it's not like a family has to be a nuclear family, a man and a woman. It can be anything. It could be one man or one woman, two women, two men, two, one woman, three men. It's whatever. I, I'm just saying, like, Michael, I like that he embraced that. And I think that did help him really navigate the extremity towards the end because he had that his children were everything or children in general were everything but i know his children changed his life dramatically prince didn't have any right you know all he had was music and i think a lot of people need to consider that prince he would call his music his children because he that's all he did and by him not having any kids that meant he was just working he spent all of his time working i'm sure he did other things but you can see he dedicated his time to performing I mean, there's hardly no year since Prince has been out as an artist where he didn't perform when he was alive. He was always performing, even if it was, you know, a couple of shows at Paisley or whatever. He he was just always making music. And I think that eventually got to him. He got older. He, he definitely paid the price for jumping off those pianos and, you know, having the hip pain and dealing with with that and just perception because he still wants to very much control the narrative. And I think he, this is another interesting question. This is probably something that could be a future podcast, but how did they navigate with the new audiences through social media? Because mm -hmm. I think towards the end, Prince, he, you know, he was on Twitter and I think he found Twitter as a good source talking to people, but it would have been interesting to see how Michael dealt with the pressures of social media because he died right at the emergence yeah right when twitter began that's when i wanted to know what you think of the release of piano and a microphone or what was formerly called intimate moments with prince so apparently intimate moments with prince has more material on it and piano and microphone is highly edited from what i heard the family did not want its release to happen my thing is i wish Prince did release more stuff like that. I know there was One Night Alone and he was doing the tour in 2016. If the family didn't want it, though, I think Warner Brothers slash Sony slash everyone else should respect that. I do think Prince knew the audience's reception. At the same time, he did a lot of things in his concerts that possibly the majority of the audience didn't know. So is it that he's so much of a perfectionist that he wouldn't want these kind of songs released? What is the deal? I don't really know. I find the Intimate Moments with Prince songs to be fascinating to me. I prefer them in some cases more than the official recorded versions. Was Prince a person who always supported the end result of something? 
Was he into letting people know about the process of the songs he was working on? Because at the same time, he said, well, someone's going to end up getting access to my ball. I don't really have any investment in it. Did that change over time? He also said to what you were talking about, his songs were his children. Michael said that his children were everybody else's children. You're, they're also your children. With the artistic quality of the music, with the process for Prince, was that something he was really possessive about? If he, in at some point in his life, he said, well, somebody's going to have access to the vault, but he was possessive of the vault, what was that perspective to you? Oh, I mean, he seemed to be very indifferent about this at varying degrees, because on one hand, he wouldn't want to release something if he wasn't comfortable with it. He would release it and then he'll not release it. You know, there have been plenty of times he'll do that, especially when he had the MPG Music Club. It'll be out for a little while and then it'll stop. You know, not that the Internet could be stopped because then by then people have already downloaded it. But <laughs> um, I think he with his new release, I did enjoy it. But I'm not like some because people say that this was circulating since the 80s. So it's obviously been upgraded, but there's still some hiss. But I appreciate it for what it is. I still think they should have released the piano and microphone DVD that was done at Paisley Park. It baffles me that that's not been released mm-hmm. because that's the most intimate Prince has ever been in his career. And that was actually meant to be heard in some weird way. I mean, he passed away, but it was already done. You know, he oh. was already remastering it and remixing. I believe it's, it's finished. It was recorded. I mean, two shows, January 21st, three months before he passed. It's a beautiful show. And he's giving you his whole life. He's talking to you about his evolution and how he explored with songs like Dirty Mind and then, you know, what he basically came to center with. So it's kind of weird that they didn't release that and that they haven't even talked about it possibly to be released because Mm -hmm. it's finished. This always happens when you say, oh, where Prince was here, this wouldn't be out. That's obviously true because I don't think he would like the songs that were on that album to be heard because there were things he said and I'm sure he probably wouldn't agree with. Okay. Um, so, but that's always a mixed bag again because when Prince was around, of course he wouldn't want it to be released. He always wanted whatever he wanted to be released. He didn't want anyone taking something that they got unofficially to be shared with the public. Mm-hmm. So I think he would have had a problem with this, but for what it is, I think it, it gives a good, display of how Prince was. I mean, this was just a rehearsal. It wasn't even meant to be released. So you can hear him playing around. It's an odd release, too. I still think this was a very odd, corny attempt at trying to bring people from the 80s back to who Prince is. It's kind of like the industry is stuck. Oh, this was before Purple Rain, 83. It's like, yeah, but we know that already. Most people know that already. Like, and if you're going to do it, cross promote it with something like the piano and microphone, because the 80s, no disrespect to the people who lived that era, but I didn't live in the 80s. The 80s is just a period of music like any other period. And when you focus on it, it kind of diminishes the other things. It makes it almost seem as if the other things are not as good. At least that's my perspective. I could be totally wrong. 
You mentioned the 80s. I was a person who did grow up in the 80s. And I remember the obsession people had with Purple Rain and Thriller. The major deal when Purple Rain premiered, there were crowds everywhere. People wanted to grab Prince. There there was pandemonium for both Michael and Prince. And wow. to see that happen and to see their evolution post their biggest albums, quote unquote, I think both Purple Rain and Thriller, if we're talking in the context of today, people talking about quote, Illuminati or witchcraft and all of this stuff. I'm not going to say they involved themselves in that, because if you look at the story of Thriller, Sony wasn't necessarily in support of Thriller during the recording of it. Michael fought hard to get that album to be where it was. Quincy Jones was not even that in support of it. People were like, well, okay, you know, CBS, it was called CBS at the time, CBS Columbia, They didn't support those two albums in the way Michael wanted support from the record company or Quincy Jones. I know people praise Quincy Jones for Thriller, but he was in the studio saying, "Okay, I'm just going to produce these songs. But, you know, it's just a bunch of songs. Walter Yetnikoff was the head of CBS, the music division at that time. This was after... uh, What's his face with Whitney Houston? Clive Davis. Clive. So Clive Davis used to be the head of CBS and got kicked out. Walter Yetnikoff had experience in legal firms. And so he was coming from that perspective. The CBS brass, just like Tommy Mottola, just like Clive Davis, all these people, they wanted hits. Off the wall was okay for them. It did pretty well. And when... You had the award ceremonies, of course. The album was relegated to soul, R&B, quote, black music. Michael was not satisfied, so he wanted to create an album that went beyond that. He wanted to go in the pop realm where everybody, regardless of ethnicity, experience, class, etc., could resonate with it and think it was good music. CBS, they were about money. So they were like, well, okay, Michael Jackson, you know, because he wasn't that big yet. He was huge to particular communities, but he wasn't huge in the way people know him now. So CBS did not stand behind the project in the way people think CBS stood behind it. So Michael fought hard to get Thriller to be in the position it was in. With Thriller, a lot of people think for some reason Michael Jackson wrote Thriller. (laughs) I don't know why. No, I don't know why. (laughs) Michael Jackson was still a Jehovah's Witness at that point. Rod Temperton wrote Thriller. The initial song was Starlight, which I actually... Starlight, son, I need you by my side to give me Starlight, Starlight, Starlight. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's the same song. I prefer musically the official version that was released. Lyrically, I prefer Starlight. Yeah, and a lot of people say, oh, Thriller was satanic. If you listen close to the lyrics, it's about a movie. It's about a monster movie. It's not about getting involved in any rituals. It's not it's it's a playful song. I just I just personally am not into it. 
but it's nothing about any satanic rituals or whatever, which is why it was a huge deal when Michael said, due to my beliefs, I do not endorse the occult, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because the Jehovah's Witnesses were getting on him for Thriller, and he never performed Thriller when he was a Jehovah's Witness. During the bad era was when he left Thriller, and that's when he started performing it. That's amazing to me. Yeah, and so I don't know if that's one of the reasons he left. I know that wasn't publicly one of the reasons he left, but did he say in his mind, well, I want to perform Thriller. It's my biggest hit at this point, so I have to. I don't I don't know that conversation he had. He left the show. This is in 87, and then he did Neverland. <laughs> and then he performed Thriller and his live performances after that. Mm-hmm. But Thriller and Purple Rain, to me, was the moment, if you want to go Faustian moment, if you want to go the moment where they were at the crossroads and had to make a decision. I think Thriller and Purple Rain were those points where they had to make a conscious decision and conversation with God where they wanted to be. They both went in the direction which was not the same after that. And a lot of people were saying, well, they both made deals with different. I don't think so. I don't agree with that at all. Because if both Michael and Prince made a, quote, deal with the devil, they would have continued to sell records at the same rate. They would have continued to receive the same positive attention that they received at those times. After that, I think when they made that conscious decision to not go the same route and to have different messages in their music, they were maligned. They were called weird. If you look at the Bad Album, this is when he started to actually have message in his, in his music. Thriller, you have want to be started something, but to me that had more of a, a politically conservative message. And people can resonate with that. That wasn't really man in the mirror. It wasn't that. It was more if you can't feed your baby, you don't have a baby. It was more of a pick yourself up kind of message. But when he started getting into man in the mirror, Another part of me, actually, that's a song I should have named. To yeah, me, another that's the song. Me another is, part of me is a spiritual song. Another part of me, to me, is about universal law. It's Michael saying we're all interconnected with one another. To me, that's more spiritual than any other song he's done. And if you look into universal law, some people won't touch it. But to me, that's God's law. Universal law is God's law. Michael wrote that, and it was in a little silly movie called Captain EO. But when he put it on the Bad Album, I think the message began to resonate more. If you listen to the lyrics, people might think of it as playful. But I really think he's speaking about universal law, and he's talking about an evolved sense of spirituality in that song. So when you're creating songs like that, and you're looking at a song like Temptation, and... You're looking at songs on Sign of the Times and and after all of that, they made conscious decisions to not be at that place they were because I think at the highest point in someone's career, that's the darkest place. And you make a decision, do I want to remain in this dark place or do I want to create the art I want to make and still in many ways please God or not have bad karma come after me? They really made a conscious decision. And when Michael did history, you have to have that serious conversation because you're not going to expose yourself like that. You're not going to expose governments. You're not going to expose people you had dealings with unless you had that conversation with the most high. He risked a lot in his career to make the history album. I know people may not think that, 
But for him to have conspiracy theory on that album, I haven't heard anybody talk about that aspect of the history album. Him, him even insinuating the government killed JFK. For Michael Jackson to say that, for him to have a song about Tom Sneddon when he's on a gag order, and I know they're skirting around Dom Sheldon and all that, but it's clear he said Tom Sneddon many times over in the song and say you think he brother with the KKK and all of this. So the lyrics he gave scream the whole system sucks. This is a huge deal for somebody who was assumedly a safe Negro up to that point, up to dangerous, really, but really up to that point to make an album like that where he's swearing all of this. He had that conversation and there was that crosswords where he's like, I'm not going to go in this dark place. The same with Prince. And to me, they found their art to be more sacred than being in this dark place in the industry. All these conspiracy theories where people are like, oh, Michael sold his soul and all of this. And there's a clone. First of all, scientifically, you cannot clone an adult. So let's get that out right, of the way. Let's get that out of the way. But you look at their spiritual evolution. You look at the music they made. There's no way that somebody who honors darkness, who worships satanic energy, could make that kind of music that Prince and Michael did. No, I totally agree. There's no way that they were involved in that. But even when people assume those things, it's because of superstition. And when you believe in things that you don't understand, <laughs> then you suffer. You suffer. <laughs> That's why when people be coming up with these chairs, it's like, okay, whatever. What's the point of you believing this? What does it change? It changes nothing. Okay, so, I mean, I mean, it changes your perception, which can be everything, but perception ain't really the truth. I think um, they both live their lives according to these affirmations of love. And I don't think that they they were involved in any kind of darkness. And even when Prince explored darkness for a while, you know, you think of an unreleased song. So it's not really popular. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube now, though. Um, <laughs> Dance in the Devil or Dance with the Devil, actually. That's a very, you know, kind of dark song. And he's talking about cunning liar and fire and all of those things but typically or even when you think of probably the best example of prince having an epiphany of sorts is his revelation that he didn't want to release the black album because it was too dark and he didn't want that to be the last thing that people associated with him with so that song or that album as a whole i never really found it as dark i mean there's some elements like super funky califragile sexy which he says a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of interesting things <laughs> in that song. But darkness, you know, even when Michael spoke of darkness or thriller, I never, I know that people did speak resentment against the video because mm -hmm. of the transformation of the wolf and all of that and you know, right. being a zombie. But I never found that as dark either. But Ghost has total embracing of that in a way that you know he he's playing the people who are criticizing him right. he's playing the mayor and he's he's kind of just analyzing why they hate so much you know going back to why you want to trip me like why are you focusing on me what is it that i'm giving you that makes you uncomfortable so it's really interesting seeing how they both talked about darkness and how they kind of went past it and just accepted what they were, whatever mm -hmm. that was. But it helped Prince to be, I do feel like his life would look drastically different if he wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. 
But even before he was a Jehovah's Witness, I mean, there, there are terms that he always used. So one of them is New World. Prince has a song in the 80s where he's speaking of New World needs spirituality that will last. And, and even on the Rainbow Children, he uses terms like the New Word translation. So it's right. almost like he always knew in a sense, I'm not saying he knew he was going to become a Jehovah's Witness, but he accepted wherever he was. And when Michael, even though he left away from it, he still sort of embraced it after a certain yes. time. I recall that his children were still going to the King Mall when he was around. So to me, that's mm -hmm. that's striking. I, I remember being kind of shocked at that. But I mean, you, you listen to a place with no name. That's definitely right. what you see written up in testimonies so <laughs> he wow. still took on a lot of those qualities and believed and there was the the article that was written by michael where he was talking about still going to kingdom hall and still believing in in that faith wow. in a lot of ways despite his spiritual evolution he still held on to some of those values so a place wow. with no name to me is definitely something you would see in Jehovah's Witness literature. But I also think in terms of his spiritual evolution, he was in a place, he was in a position where he grew tired of the material world in a way. He he was world weary and he wanted to be in another place where there was no pain. So it made sense to me on a Jehovah's Witness level as well as a spiritual evolution level for him to do a song like that. And with the Future, which to me is one of Prince's most spiritual songs. He oh, talks about goodness. systematic overthrow of the underclass. Hollywood conjures images of the past. The world needs spirituality that, spirituality that right. will last. Mm -hmm. That will last, yeah. The future and it will be. So even that, you see a forerunner to him believing in a Jehovah's Witness uh, belief system. And just... You know, everyone's saying, oh, he's satanic and all of this. Just lyrics like that. He's talking about the class structure, which is anti-human, anti-God. And he's talking about Hollywood, which is dark and anti-God. So even though he's, quote unquote, mixed up in Hollywood and knows a lot of those people, he has removed himself from that because he knows what it is, what it's like, where it stands. And it's not for something he believed in. So to me, this is that song is one of the greatest examples. And then he talks about even drug culture. It's like yellow smiley offers me like he's drinking. Offers me X, right. I would rather Seven drink six razor blades from a paper cup. And so he's talking about drugs, right. even though, you know, the autopsy says drug overdose. So he still had that mix up with the material world. But he understood his position as a spiritual person. So yeah, the, totally. the, the yeah, future I mean, is one of my favorites. A lot of people don't. I don't know why the future is forgotten. Me either. You can I love that song. Go into the future because most people don't talk about that. That song is always forgotten. Prince was in Hollywood still, even though he lived in Minnesota, he still was around the forces that invite those kind of behaviors. So it's not surprising when you hear him write songs like "The Future" or he mentions "Yellow Smiley Offer Me X" or just. You know what people are doing. There's another song I can that I'm thinking of. Uh, what is it? Um, Dream Factory that he put on Crystal Ball. 
you know, he talks about pills and even in a song like Fascination, he talks about the pills that we take just to get a side effect <laughs> and, you know, you're then addicted to the side effects. So it's not surprising that Michael R. Prince, and we talked about this before in our podcast about drugs and whatnot, but I don't think it's okay for us to act as if we can judge people for their substance abuse or any kind of level of abuse that they might suffer from because Mm -hmm. people deal with things on different levels and it's not surprising that they write about it and they talk about me. Michael did it with morphine. He was clear of, you know, what it was like for him to deal with that kind of drug and French did it, I think with loneliness and he's mentioned, he definitely has songs where you can see he's indicated substance attachment and even if it was not for a way of endorsing you know people go through things and and prince went through things just like anyone else just like michael went through and they were very open with what they shared it is interesting to look at the future and other songs on the batman soundtrack and i was shocked when i went to see the Tim Burton version of Batman because Tim Burton plays with dark images all the time and to see Prince be part of the soundtrack of course Jack Nicholson was adamant that Prince should be part of the project so thanks Jack Nicholson (laughs) 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 to have spirituality all over that album and the consequences of particular behaviors for Prince to say on a Hollywood production, Warner Brothers, to say the world needs spirituality. If there's an afterlife, we'll see, so I don't go out like a jerk. To have that, to me, is a huge coup in a lot of ways. For Prince to have these overt spiritual images and these overt spiritual statements on a film, on a project that was very dark in a lot of ways. And it wasn't as playful as the 60s Batman with Adam West. It wasn't as playful as even the future Batmans that Joel Schumacher did. Like the Tim Burton version was one of the darkest renditions of Batman. And to have Prince on that put a little light on the project. Right. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing that he worked. I didn't because I didn't know that it was the darkest um, Batman. I'm not it's one of as them. familiar. It's one of them. Okay. Yeah. I'm not as familiar with um, Batman. I do like The Dark Knight, obviously, with Heath Ledger, but I remember trying to watch the one that Prince did. It's like, I couldn't really get into it. I don't know. <laughs> but maybe that was just a <laughs> moment. But I believe, if you're saying that that was darker, I'm very interested. I like when artists, and then again, you're ext- you're hitting all of the points that I think need to be made. Seeing as big as they were at that time, and just how much success they had and then, and then taking that success to use it as a platform to talk about things that are not so commonly talked about. It was definitely muddying the waters, so to speak. Yeah, I remember Denise Williams talking about mm-hmm. how she was supposed to perform Let's Hear It for the Boy on the Grammys or one of those ceremonies because, again, it was a hit. It was one of her biggest hits. The other one was Too Much, Too Little, Too Late with Johnny Mathis. But uh, the Grammy performance, they wanted her to perform the song. Even before that, let's backtrack. 
she always wanted to have a spiritual song on her album because she's a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. did God is Amazing on her album. Yes, and exactly. Columbia Brass were like, uh, we don't know. That's not going to sell. And she said, no, I'm going to have this on my album. <laughs> and she did. And it did well. That's and one of my favorite songs of hers. You know, brother always there you go. Yeah. So she did that on the Grammys instead of Let's Hear It for the Boy. And she just looks so at peace when she did it. This is the thing. People think every single person who gets in the industry and gets some fame makes a deal with the quote unquote devil. It's no, people actually have spiritual resolve and they do not cave into that dark energy. Denise Williams was prominent in not caving into that. And she's been consistent about that. And I think Prince is the same way. I think Michael again has had some challenges. But I don't think he caved in to that dark energy like people think. So I think like, people who say that are not speaking from a place of confidence, but more so speculation based off of their uh, depictions off of the media or what people read right. in the comments, because I don't see any darkness there. And we have to understand that some of these dark images are given by the people who run these companies in order right. to deceive people. These are the ones who do the rituals. They do that witchcraft for deceiving people. Well, I think some of it is also mind manipulation. You know, media, people are very subject to just what they perceive. And if they're watching a lot of television and they're not reading a lot and they're not really sure how to reach an objective conclusion, they're going to just jump at it. And that's probably why conspiracy videos are so popular, because... If something seems odd and someone is able to explain why it's odd and then basically try to set up the dots for you, <laughs> it kind of becomes like a game. And then your mind starts to to see these connections that may or may not be there. But there's definitely some influence from the people. The the whole image thing, it's an, it's an image to bring about a message. And they definitely see what who's more you know viable to receive that message, to believe that message even. Especially since everything is on social media the way it is. People want right. to escape through that. And so that's why Stan culture becomes a thing and everything else. It's all connected to these weird um, pieces scattered about. You see a lot of artists, particularly with these 360 deals, knowing how the industry works, and they're still being coerced into signing these deals and having their rights taken away. Therefore, not standing on the shoulders of people like Michael and Prince, who fought to have the rights to their music back. I'm not sure why people insist on still signing these deals, particularly when you have the Internet, you have social media, where it's so much easier to create art on your own terms. But people want this fame, where this lure of fame taking away your integrity, taking away your spiritual autonomy and michael and prince of course michael in later years was much more open about his artistic autonomy (laughs) but prince with slave written on his face he understood from the beginning we talked about this that he had to have his publishing on his own terms because he knew how these companies worked They wanted him to have different producers. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to produce my own music. I'm going to do it my way. If you don't let me do it my way, then I'm not going to sign with you. He knew that from the beginning. The difference is that he didn't have the rights to his music in full until much later. 
But in terms of the the production, in terms of the publishing, he said, nope, <laughs> this is mine and I'm going to have it. Michael didn't have full access to that. He was a solid businessman in a lot of cases, but he was naive in other ways when it came to dealing with people because he didn't have the skills or the training to deal with people outside of how he marketed himself outside of the bubble. He had training from Motown and then he had training from his father. <laughs> yes. So Michael didn't have the same autonomy because he, he was already thrust into the industry through a musical group and through management, different managers and things like that. So there was always somebody doing the back end of the work. When he did Thriller, I think that's when he really started to wake up to that. A little before that, when he got just relegated to the R&B soul, quote unquote, black music division, I think that's when he, you saw the beginnings of him waking up. But it was around right, a time yeah. Thriller when he was really thrust into the spotlight where his education truly started happening about how the industry works. And so then 84, 85, that's when he said, okay, I'm going to work on getting this publishing. And then you really started seeing how people treated it. So his education was around that time, but it was already to the point where he didn't have the rights to his music. He didn't have all of the stuff that Prince had because Prince from the beginning was adamant. Like, no, I'm going to have access. I'm going to have autonomy. Michael didn't necessarily fight for autonomy in that way, and it took much longer for him to be able to be open about that autonomy. So at that point, by the time it was 2001, 2002, 2003, people were saying, oh, he just wanted attention because he wasn't selling records, even though he was being honest. But people had already downed him, where Prince, when he was doing the slave thing, yeah, people made fun of him, but people already knew his history. Because he was always been open about it, either in song or interviews. But Michael was always guarded, so didn't talk about what happened behind the scenes. So by the time he was open with it, they're like, oh, man, get get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) People don't listen. Like, it's all what you're saying. It's all all in the wash. (laughs) But yeah, now people are saying, oh, he was right the whole time. But they didn't believe him when he was talking about it. When he was in the UK saying Tommy Matola is the devil. And he said Tommy Matola is the devil. Yeah. So he knew he was dealing with satanic people. And this is why I don't understand what people say. Oh, he's making deals with the devil. And to say the devil, like who is the devil? There are people with satanic energy. But people, when you ask people who's the devil, people can't describe it. And so when you it's ask people some force or something, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's what I, that's what I look at. I'm looking at both God and devil being forces. And so they're forces for positive energy and forces for not positive energy. But now people are like, Oh, the devil, but what is the devil? Who is the devil? And there are definitely forces at play where people have to make a conscious decision and to say Bob Dylan sold his soul to the devil. What is that? What does that mean? And people can't exactly. I don't know what, that. I don't think people, that's why I'm not one to really go out and believe these kind of theories of selling your soul. I don't really 
understand it. I understand why people say these things because I guess for some it kind of puts in perspective some assumptions that they might have for about the, those kind of people. But I don't do that. I don't. I don't really understand. It's a lot of work to do as well to be fi- figuring out who's who the Illuminati got next and and what we gonna do about it and how we shouldn't listen to it because of this. It's it's very exhausting. If the music is good, I'm listening. <laughs> See, I'm not that person. If I the music would be good, but if it's got satanic energy in it, I, I will not deal with it. And to me, satanic energy is mm-hmm. it's it's more like the whole element of do out that will. It's more about nihilism. That's why I can't listen to a lot of the modern music because if we're looking at revelations, if we take any stock in any of these documents, if, if we take any stock in the Bible, even looking at it metaphorically, if we're looking at what the Bible in many cases takes from uh, pieces of folklore, etc., do out that will, the nihilism, the love of self, which is ever increasing at this point. I just can't listen to that. It's just too much of the dark energy and the worship that's happening of these celebrities right now is, is at an all time high. The narcissism is at an all time high and that's what we're seeing in this music. And to me, that is a spiritual battle. We are in spiritual warfare right now and I think that is what's happening with Kanye West. I think that's what's happening with Beyonce. And I think both Michael and Prince had little spiritual wars going on based on the industry they were dealing with. Because the energy they're dealing with is highly satanic. You just look at the death of Whitney Houston. You know that was a ritualistic murder. I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories in, in this episode because that's not what it's about. But if people are murdered, what happens? They usually... First say it's a homicide and close off the whole area. Why was there a party going on when Whitney Houston's body was still on the premises? To me, that is a ritualistic murder. People can argue with that, but that makes yeah, I did a see a, amount um, of sense that her body would still be lying in that building while they're having a Grammy party. Mm-hmm. Clyde Davis is satanic to me. What he did to Phyllis Hyman, what he did to other artists, what he did with Whitney Houston, it, the man is evil. And what Shaka Khan said that is demonic, I'm with her. I am with her. I am with her. There's no way in any other situation I've heard of, unless it's a ritualistic murder, that you would be able to have events in a place someone was murdered in. If you've heard of that, let me know. No, I, that's that's clear. That's obviously clear. Yeah. I think that makes it true that Clive Davis especially is a shady character. I saw a video of Whitney Houston, I believe a week before she passed. It had been a while since I've seen that video when she her hair was wet and she saw Brandy and she gave her a note. Oh, and, right, right. And she said that, almost... Wasn't that the day before or something? I thought it was a week. It could have been a day before. I, I don't know. I'm just asking. I'm not sure the exact... It wasn't that long from the period, that's for sure. Right. Right. Um, and it was such a strange video. I was like, why was she, you know, she, she was basically, she said something about drowning and her is hair she? was wet. Yeah. Now this is becoming a conspiracy. I might be out of context, but I don't believe so. I watched the video at least three times and I, I even slowed it down and she hmm. did mention something about drowning. 
Um, so it's really, really odd. And I mean, I'm not here to say that I don't distance myself from energy that's bad. In fact, if something isn't giving me a good vibe, I just cut out from it because I don't need the extra drama because there's already enough drama in life and I don't need the extra drama if I can control it. Mm -hmm. So I do stay away from extra drama, but I don't. Um, nihilism to me, or when you use that word, it, it, it's just, to me, it's a bit different. It's just like people believe a lot of different things. And there's not always a reason for that belief. It could just be a reaction. It could be not understanding why you believe it. And therefore, it gives it, it's kind of hard to see how some people can just not accept something if, if they're not really fully understanding why it is. But you, but you basically got to listen to intuition. If you know, Something is giving you a bad vibe, then you stay away from it. But when it comes to just like the sacrifices, like the industry, there's so much that has been revealed about Hollywood already. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to forget that that history still exists with Hollywood because we like to look at these people as kind of just being beyond us. But so much has been written about just kind of what goes on in Hollywood. And it's not pretty. It's a lot of manipulation, extortion, doing things you don't want to do just for the sake of giving, you know, getting the people at the top a higher profit. So there's definitely manipulation and scandal and extortion and exploitation and all of these things done in Hollywood. I'm not denying that. I'm not here saying that, oh, no, that ain't happening in Hollywood. I know there's a <laughs> lot of shit that's happening in Hollywood that we don't know about. And it's probably a good good thing to be skeptical and to not deal with certain people like Clive Davis has always struck me as odd mm. and I mm. listen to Shaka Khan <laughs> yeah. so Shaka Khan said it all right there on Larry King Live she was like I didn't go I don't see how anyone could go to that <laughs> but, yeah, I, yeah I really yeah, see that's a, people like Clive Davis Russell Simmons all those people have satanic mm. energy Russell Simmons was about money. It's like a lot of these executives, they're about money. Barry Gordy, they don't necessarily look at things in a spiritual sense. I know Russell Simmons, he practices yoga and is supposedly Buddhist. But you can practice any kind of religion or spiritual practice and still have darkness to it. So people like Jay-Z, who are talking about do without will and all of this, it's very clear to me that he has practiced some type of rituals to get to the position he's in. I really do not think I am wrong about that. I think he has pulled Beyonce into whatever world that he has gone into to get to that position. I think she is trapped. I think she is definitely having a spiritual battle and the lemonade album and all of these things are possibly a sign for help she may have performed some rituals herself i don't think they are on the level of jay-z i think people are trapped in that world who necessarily did not want to be in that world people like beyonce and are now in this position where they may feel they cannot get out or are fighting to get out i don't know all the details but you look at where beyonce was and where she is now and you look at her eyes you look at Kanye West's eyes, there's just something different going on. And when you're in a spiritual battle, your whole persona switches up, your eyes switch up sometimes. So there, there's stuff going on. And you, you even look at where Prince and Michael were, and you look at their body language and how they were at the time they were at the quote height of their careers. 
And then you look at later on, there was relaxation in their body language later on. You look at, again, dangerous. We were talking about dangerous. Michael seemed much more relaxed and much more open with where he wanted to be. And he was speaking out against being trapped with where people wanted him to be. Same with Prince. He was trapped by Purple Rain. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm, I'm evolving in my art. <laughs> so I'm just having a lot of conversations about this more modern music. I tell people, okay, they could say in the song, I'm going to murder. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And that would be okay with you. Well, the beat's good. I, I, what? <laughs> what? But it's very rarely. I mean, I've heard some stuff from maybe XXX. Tension and maybe the other one who passed away earlier this year, but I don't usually hear like murder kind of stuff. But sometimes they might give. Um, it's it's hard to tell really because when you got a lot of people writing the music and they're just bringing in cultural terms that are relevant to a certain audience, you know, I, a lot of it is is cold to me anyway. Not that it's bad cold, but it's just probably just something I would never deem to think of importance but so many people listen to music differently and yeah. so it's kind of hard to really i don't know it's people i don't know it's every time i think long and hard about it, it's like i don't know what we're listening to we can listen we can look at some one thing two people can look at one thing and see something entirely different and that's what that's makes true. it very true hard. yeah well with ghosts because you mentioned ghosts and i look at ghosts as more of a metaphorical way of thinking he was going through what happened in 1993 he was going on what the public at that point thought of him he was going by this fight within himself about where he wanted to be or needed to be and that movie was a representation of that and then of course he was playing on thriller because people love thriller ghosts he was supposed to be writing some music for the Adams Family movie. And then because of what happened in 1993, they cut him loose. So those songs were an offshoot of the whole Adams Family thing. There was a scene in the Adams Family movie, and I've only seen this scene, which is interesting. Wednesday was a little girl. So she was supposed to be in a class talking about Thanksgiving or something like that. And she says, oh, yeah, like the... Indians oh yeah, were killed. Like the, like the, I was like, exactly. Whoa. Yeah. So they're putting these gems in these movies, and people were just not even catching it. I, I call okay. it all the time. I love the Adams Family because of that. <laughs> and the so hand. They, yeah, they put these little gems in these movies, and they pass it off as something else. And most people yeah. miss these messages with ghosts. And when he talks about. Are you the ghost of jealousy? He might be talking about people in the industry. I don't know. Talking about people who said he was weird. I don't know specifically who he's referring to. It's very clear the songs are autobiographical. Is it scary? I think that's even more autobiographical. I think he's talking about high levels of his anxiety. He's talking about high levels of his self-doubt and his spiritual battles. I think anyone who has self-doubt in some way is going through a spiritual battle. When he talks about you're scaring me too, the stranger is you, all of this stuff. In some levels, he could be talking about himself, how he's scaring himself with what's happening. But it's very clear he's talking about the people who were 
in the film were representing the the town leader. So all of these people who have been attacking him left and right, he's scared as well. He's going back to being a scared little boy in some ways because he doesn't know at this point how to handle the quote real world because he wasn't equipped to ever do it. So now when he's thrust into the quote real world by these trials, people critiquing him in a way he couldn't necessarily handle, is as scary as a result. And it, to me, it's a beautiful song and it was co-written with Jam and Lewis. When they start getting to more piano based stuff, I love when they do that stuff. You know, tender love. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> no. Oh, tender love. That's like, come on. That's Jim and Lewis perfect. But no, nobody talks know. about that. I really. don't know. I do. Talk yeah, to I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, ghosts, and isn't it scary in particular, was an aspect of Michael's spiritual battle and his anxiety, his self-critique. Him being open with how he's feeling about being attacked from different places, spiritually, materially, etc. But it's in the package of this movie, which has ghosts and zombies and stuff like that. That's what people are familiar with when they think of Michael Thriller. So, of course, he's going to play on that. But that doesn't mean he's dabbling in dark energies just because he's doing a film about it. Yeah, you could say he's tampering in that with imagery. But to say he's tampering with that in his own life and doing rituals, to me, that's a difference. Ghosts, yeah, he's still dealing with the material world and fighting with that. So it would make sense to me to do ghosts. Would I do something like ghosts? No. But looking at where Michael was, and he liked he liked imagery. He liked makeup. He liked doing all that stuff. And he got to play with that. So it makes sense to me. But to say, oh, see, he's tampering with Satan. No, I don't see evidence that he was tampering with that. No, again, I don't. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at anything too long, (laughs) it start making whatever you see come true. And that's something I always remind myself of because, again, perception isn't really the truth. But overall, from what. The topic is we went, oh, we went a lot of different areas with this conversation because as many conversations, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things that have to kind of be taken apart for us to really examine, you know, the core of it. But I think both Michael and Prince, they share that in common. Their end goal, which is love. It wasn't done in a forceful way all the time. Sometimes it may have been dressed the wrong way or whatever, but it was still done where it was consistent and they end up transcending. So I find it interesting. You said that because both of them and Whitney, I think they knew their time was not very long at the points mm-hmm. where you really started seeing their evolution or their major consistency. So in a electronic press kit for the nothing but love tour, which was taken down it's really weird that it was taken down. I saw it when it first was uploaded onto YouTube. But Winnie Houston did this EPK for her European Nothing But Love tour. And she starts talking about the dark energies in the music industry and how a lot of these modern performers are playing with dark energy and wearing particular types of clothing and singing about particular types of things. And she said, you don't have to do that. And I 
when she said that, my ears perked up and knew she was talking about Lady Gaga and and people like that. And maybe I can't remember the other one's name to talk about I kissed a girl or something. I don't Katy Perry. Yeah. Katy Perry. And so there was an interview that Katy Perry did because she was a gospel singer. I think she wanted to be like Amy Grant. And then she did an interview that said, I sold my soul to the devil. And when people say that, to me, that's metaphorical because the industry is satanic. So you're selling your soul and your values to be in this industry. I don't think they're actually having a conversation with the devil and say, make me famous. Get out of here. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. They're, going, they're talking to Clive Davis. They're talking to Quincy Jones. That is making a deal with the devil. And Katy Perry said, yeah, I made a deal with the devil. Yeah, And she laughed uncomfortably about it. But look at where she got. And then I saw some things within the past year that she was crying that she wanted to be where she used to be. So people are now crying for help because they've gotten so far in this industry and they're having spiritual battles. There's only so far you can go before you reach this apex and you have nowhere else. And you start having these battles saying, I need to be where I was, where I was at much more at peace. Whitney Houston is saying this in an interview. And I said, what? Okay, Whitney, <laughs> but you are at a position where you are at the spiritual level that's higher. Like you were in the dark places in the industry. You thought you had drug dependency slash addiction. She went in a lot of dark places. But I think she knew her time was not long. So she was just exposing the industry in her own way. And she didn't go into it like other people, but she said it in her own way. That was very, very clear. And yes, you had this yes. thing with Prince and Michael. I think they all knew they were in this position where they were not long for the world. And they were like, OK, I'm just going to tell you where I'm at right now. And he's saying Tommy Matola is the devil. And then he's writing notes on pillowcases saying I'm going to be murdered from my catalog. He's just telling you what's going on and where he's going to be. And he knew when he did this is it. He knew he wasn't going to be for that longer. So he said, you know, I want to donate all the money. He knew he already knew. And he was having fights with people behind the scenes. And then Prince talking about chemtrails. I mean, they knew that something was going to happen. And that's what happens when you're spiritually evolving or you're at, a, you're at a level where you're already high up on the spiritual <laughs> level. Mm -hmm. You know. That's why I'm concerned for people like Shaka Khan. She's hanging out with Scientologists and stuff. She's, she's a spiritual person herself. So she needs to have discernment. And there's a lot of people who are very spiritual people and dealing with dark energies. So I hope they are with people who are not in that industry that they could talk to. And if they do prayer sessions, whatever people have in their lives that make them feel spiritually calmer. But people in the industry know what is going on in these rituals that happen. So for Shaka Khan to say that was demonic, what was going on, people need to listen to her. When people like Katy Perry are saying, I want to be back to where I was and crying. And then people need to listen to that and stop saying, well, it's just music. Because you can have many a rapper, many a singer 
talk about how they were at the table and the executives told them, don't put that song on your record. It's not going to make us money. Many people have those stories. Talk, yeah. talk about how women are hoes and stuff like that. That's what you that, that's what you need to make because that's going to sell its record. Don't talk about how women are beautiful. Don't talk about being African. Don't talk about that. that we don't want that. We don't want that. And people get told that all the time. And for people to say it's just music and people talk about what they know, that's not true. To some point it is. But if that kind of music is selling consistently, that should tell you something. Because not everyone has lived those lives. Well, of course, but that's those are the lives that they can make the most. It's capitalism, you know, exploitation. You <laughs> Exploiting people for their talent. And there it giving is. Them anything in return. So. And so when you have these cycles, because there was a point in the 90s, you had a variety. You had Public Enemy. You had Karis One. You had Anita Baker. You had all of these people. Aleta Adams. Alita Adams. Alita. Yeah, Alita Adams. <laughs> yeah. So you have rappers that were into Anita Baker. You had mm-hmm. rappers who were not afraid to sing or to dance. You had Big Daddy Kane. Dance, exactly. Yeah, you people have all just scared to do all of these things now. They feel like, and that's what's sad. People have really bought into this machine-like system. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's very unfortunate because raps should be over-encompassing. It should be embracing of all of the different people. It's a shame that rap has still become this patriarchal misogynistic genre it can be more than that because there were other examples of that in the past but now it's not a marketing advantage or it's not a incentive for them to make money so you had latifa talking about women yeah you and ity yes i mean she came out like bam i'm latifa what you had mc light you had yo-yo she's talking about ibwc you know so this was happening. This element of women's empowerment, women's autonomy was happening in hip hop amidst NWA, but that overpowered the industry because that started to sell. And then they said, we're, go- we're going to make a whole bunch of Tupacs, but Tupac also had that political consciousness. The industry was like, that's not going to sell. You got you got to talk about hyper masculinity. That's what you got to do because that's what's going to sell for us. So that's what was prominent, and people don't know there was a variety in hip-hop. People who didn't come up in it didn't know, and they think that's all there is. So now you have Excestacion or whatever, and all these people promoting drugs. That's what you have now. So now it's deadening people who are listening. It's deadening people's spirit, and they think they have to get high off perks, all this stuff, because... That's what their favorite rap stars do. And now people who haven't even been out for five years are icons. What That's that? due to social media. Let's right. people. But they again, it's, no the, it's the worship of celebrity. It used to be where you had to be out for 20 years before you could even be deemed a legend. But now it's like you have to be not even 10 years. Oh, that's a legend. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's quite amazing when people... So there there was that one guy, was it XXXStacion? He had some cake that was made of pills or something. It's just a deadening of the spirit. These pills, these drugs deaden your spirit, especially when you're not using them for their intended purposes. And so this is what we have now. 
and you had artists like Prince, you had artists like Whitney Houston, you had artists like Michael Jackson, who use spirituality and a huge component of their art. I would say definitely Prince. <laughs> and Whitney Houston will always in her concerts talk about, I love the Lord. And then Michael Jackson would always be like, give it up for God. You know? <laughs> so that was a huge element in what they did. But you don't see that so much anymore. And there's a huge shift towards darkness. And now we have do what thou wilt and all of this stuff. And that's why when I you am, say do what thou wilt, is, is that the... That's the that's Alistair Crowley That's what? It's the Alistair Crowley thing. And so Alistair Crowley developed Philema, and it was taken from other spiritual practices. So you had African spirituality. It took from Abrahamic faith, but it was merging with... And I'm not an expert on it. I did study some Alistair Crowley. I don't know all of it, so... I'm not even going to get that deeply into it. But what I do know about Alistair Crowley and the Lima, it's more, and, and even Satanism, it's more about self-worship and you're your own God and all of this. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> so it's taking from different aspects of spirituality and using it for self-identification. I'm like, uh, what? And so the whole do what thou will and all of it, to me, that's, I uh, stay away from that. I know in a lot of cases, people say, oh, you're your own creator and all of this. But people who say that still do traditional spiritual practices and look towards a higher power. But then when you start getting into things like the secret, I stay away from all that. I think mm -mm. it's like, secret. oh, well, you're your, you're your own creator and your own. Dust. And it, that gets into people's heads and you start getting into dark energy with all that. I stay away from that and there was the other one that movie uh what the bleep do we know so you had ramtha and the person who helped develop that i think there were charges brought against her so all these false prophets as michael talked about uh -oh. all coming into the picture and you had people like the beatles you had the rolling stones you had all of these musical groups mess with that energy Ozzy Osbourne had a song called Mr. Crowley. So they're messing with a lot of that energy and that satanic energy and the dark energy. And I'm not even talking about people like, oh, how come it has to be dark? And how come oh, light has to be white? I'm not talking about that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're not saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, mm, it's interesting to me. I, I'm looking at it from an observer's point of view. And I, I think that people make up I mean there's some superstition there's some things that happen that we don't fully get the details to um, but then there's also the fact that people are great storytellers that's what humans do humans tell stories and people believe those stories now the effect of those stories may change especially if you're going through something personal and you're able to connect that story to to be some kind of savior or elixir in your life but overall stories are just stories they're stories that you either believe or you say oh well this is what they're doing if you're like ide ideology is being challenged to the point of disrespect like oh you you should believe this bow down to me that kind of stuff i don't think is valid but overall people when i hear because i'm familiar with the quote do what thou wilt and it's usually done in the sense where it's like all rules are imaginary. 
Like you can like overall people come up with things to help control the system. Like we speak about the system and Michael and Prince both spoke about systems and the system can be hacked, hijacked, distorted, decoded. I mean, basically what I'm saying is there's really several different ways you can go about it. You can go about it the way of, I mean, I do think that Michael and Prince towards the end, they, they had an idea that, okay, my time, and even Whitney, like you mentioned, because mm-hmm. I find it amazing that they all passed away in similar times. They both, just where they were towards the end of their life, where Michael was, where Prince was, where Whitney was, it was at a place of, I mean, Prince was already doing piano microphone, but he was being the most personal he ever was. Michael needed to not only pay some of the debts he owed, but he wanted his children to see him perform and he wanted it to be the end and Whitney was already on tour although the tour wasn't as successful because Clive Davis again (laughs) forcing her to to do it and so it was almost like they were all simultaneously doing something they were still working (laughs) and showing us and and that just goes to show you the expectation for them to perform wanting them to just constantly please us through the medium of performance or they couldn't just chill. If they rested too long, then we would complain like, oh, they're not doing anything. Oh, they're lazy. You know, just that expectation. Um, and I, I think they were aware of that. They knew what their fans wanted. They wanted to give. They felt like their purpose was to serve us in a mm-hmm. sense. But I think it ultimately led to their demise maybe sooner Yeah. Um, than it could have. But that's that's a whole other topic. Again, what you said, I think this podcast, we, we went a lot of different areas. <laughs> but the duo that we in all of this, we have to understand as well that these statements are promoted and created by people who dictate the narrative. They're not created by us. And we have to have discernment and we have to be careful who we accept these statements from and these images from. And Aleister Crowley was a person who eventually got rejected by those people, but he had some influence in a lot of the cases, as we can see. So we have to have major discernment about accepting these statements because do what thou wilt is a major capitalistic principle. It's about self-gratification. It is about dispelling whatever rules, but who creates the rules? And so now it's like, okay, don't listen to those rules because we created these different ones. But it still oppresses people. And so we have to understand <laughs> that the narrative is not one we created. We have to understand our autonomy is being taken away. And it's I'm not even doing the right wing Christians like, oh, it's taken away. But in terms of spiritual autonomy, we're not supposed to even have that because our perception, the concept of God is constantly dictated to us. So whenever someone has a high spiritual framework, they're deemed, quote, crazy. People deem Prince crazy. People deem Sinead O'Connor crazy. People deem Lauren Hill crazy because <laughs> they're spiritually evolving. And again, Lauren Hill should be on time for her shows. I'm not disagreeing with that. But people, because of where she's at spiritually and constantly evolving, they say she's crazy. How we use the word crazy is just wrong. <laughs> and oh, they said Michael sure. was crazy. Oh. Yeah, it's important to just have discernment and not go with what someone says 
based on our personal beliefs. We have to not be led by everything because we agree with it in some way. And just the way the industry is, the way the industry has been for a long time, if not the whole time, we see how people change once they get into the deep of the industry. We see what happens with Disney kids all the time. That's a perfect example of what happens when people get deep into that industry. They change and then they go off their programming. We see what happens with people like Miley Cyrus. We see what happens with people like Britney Spears, where she shaved her head because she wanted to get rid of a particular aspect of herself. People thought she was crazy. Crazy. But she was having a spiritual battle. And people don't understand this. People say, oh, there's no such thing as the devil. Oh, there's no such thing as witchcraft. But there is. There is. And there are pure examples of it. And again, people who have it's done... A very, this would be a separate... This would be a very interesting yes. podcast. Because I'm, there's so many layers to it. Because on one hand, I believe that. But then on the other hand, I'm a bit skeptical. Because I think people yeah. also are involved in situations where they're mistrust like they're trusting the wrong people the people have a motive and they want to basically get that motive accomplished and they'll basically exploit you until they get what they want and that's not to me demonic as it is just being a narcissist to the point of abuse where you don't care about someone else's reactions and i can see how it can be seen as being demonic but i think on other cases the wording i would probably use is just not empathetic because there there are a lot of people who don't have empathy that's not a quality that um everyone (laughs) was raised around or taught they just believe and this is why we mostly commonly associate them as narcissists because they do lack empathy they do lack the ability to resonate with their peers and even care of what they think you know so yeah um, there's, there's so many layers And I already told you, I think narcissists are satanic or they're demonic. So that's that's where I stand with that. I've experienced it. So I am going to stand with that. (laughs) And yeah, there are people who don't have empathy. I think a lot of the people in the case of this Kavanaugh situation, people who side with Kavanaugh are not necessarily narcissist but it's the whole thing of oh why didn't you respond earlier if you were assaulted by him why did you not say anything why did you wait for so long what were you wearing people saying are not necessarily narcissists but there are very specific qualities to narcissism and that is where the demonic activity comes in somebody just being ignorant or mean or whatever that that's one thing but narcissism carries a whole different set of qualities. And I would say someone like Quincy Jones is a narcissist. Someone like Clive Davis is a narcissist. Someone like Russell Simmons is a narcissist. And I consider all of them to be demonic or have demonic qualities. (laughs) (laughs) And you look at where Michael stood with Quincy Jones. If you look at those interviews during that era, if you look at them together when they were on the American Music Awards and the Grammys and all that, look at Michael's body language. He looked stiff. It's really weird. I really think they were trying to take over his body and he was resisting oh and he wore those glasses. 
And again, that could be into conspiracy theory, but Michael being a spiritual person and he was being vulnerable. He was highly vulnerable because he didn't know how to deal with people. And he only had a certain level of interaction with the outside world. I don't know if his mother taught him about being overtaken by demonic forces. I don't know. She probably talked to him about it in a way that was like, well, yeah, the devil and Satan and all that. But on a spiritual sense, I don't know if they had that conversation. Michael being in the industry at that level where he was, I think he started to understand that. And so that's where the crossroads came at. And Prince, yeah, he was already like, eh. <laughs> I ain't dealing with you. I ain't dealing with you. I ain't dealing with you. I haven't seen a lot of footage of him with Quincy Jones but when they did that. We are the world thing. Look at what Quincy Jones was trying to get him to sing and Prince was like, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gave him the sucker. <laughs> right. And I think Prince knew who he was dealing with because he was already at a high spiritual level at that point. And you look at the interviews he did where Michael, they had him at a point. He didn't make deals or anything, but because they understood how vulnerable he was, they were able to manipulate him. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. They They definitely manipulated him. And I think towards the end. And even when it was happening, he still was ahead of his game on some some aspects, yeah, but absolutely. it still felt like they they took advantage of his weakness. And the weakness being yeah. his his niceness, his charm, his naivety. Right. And that, that interview he did with Quincy Jones when they had muscles mm -hmm. and just how Quincy Jones was talking and and just Michael sitting there, he looked uncomfortable. I don't think he took advantage of Michael sexually like he did with other people. Oh, and Lord. just the story that Tupac talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> but, look, we gonna have to we we that's going a whole other, to, yeah. yeah, that's a the way Michael was sitting there with muscles a snake and then Quincy Jones, how he was interacting with Michael and then when they were winning the Grammys and, and Michael was clearly uncomfortable in some of those interactions. It was as if Quincy Jones was trying to get to him. But Michael was resisting. And then when the bad period came, you saw that came to a head and Michael started having more spiritual messages in his music. Michael had more political messages eventually in his music. And Quincy Jones was like, I'm going to suggest you go to another producer because he couldn't control Michael. Michael was not to be controlled. Even though he was manipulating, he couldn't be controlled. And Chrissy Jones, I think, struggled with that because he was able to manipulate and control other people. And Michael already was in the industry up to that point, which is another reason why I think he couldn't be controlled because he knew enough about the industry. But people just coming in, he was able to kind of get his way and manipulate them sexually in other ways. But Michael was like, oh, I've already been here. <laughs> You can't do this to me. Like, I already know what the industry's like. I've been performing since I was five. <laughs> and so I think, I think in a lot of ways, again, I wasn't behind the scenes. I don't know either one. But from my perspective and looking at their body language, I think that was one of the major battles they had. I think it was a spiritual battle. Quincy Jones could not get past that armor Michael had in his connection with God. I really think that was a huge component of their relationship. And the beginning of the end of their relationship when Quincy Jones realized he could not seep through that armor. And you could say the same with Prince because I'm sure Quincy Jones tried to work with Prince at some point. I'm actually curious about the Tevin Campbell connection 
because it was clear to me that Prince didn't necessarily like Quincy Jones, but Quincy Jones said, hey, hey, Prince, here's Tevin Campbell. So I'm just curious about what that interaction was about. Yeah, that's that's always been interesting. Ah, <laughs> that I don't even. Yeah, that's 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 going into territory that I'm yeah. equipped to to say I don't know about. I know Quincy is a shady character though, and that's enough for me to just keep my distance from him and to not believe anything he really says off face value because he is a narcissist likely and he loves getting off of people just. Hearing that it was because of him, you know, oh, you know, I was the one who did it. I wanted to ask about the body being sacred. Both Prince and Michael at points in their lives have been vegetarian. Prince definitely vegan. Do you think there is a connection they made with their spiritual practices or their belief systems that said being vegetarian was a great thing to do or just with Prince? connecting his diet with the treatment of non-humans michael saying animals were inspiring to me but then going to eating kfc and we (laughs) the whole industry practice of what happens with chickens so the contradiction that happened with both of them because i'm sure even when prince was had a vegan diet he wore leather so exactly well that's the thing i think they both I mean, Prince, I think of his song, Animal Kingdom, where he right, talks exactly. about that, you know, uh, all your brothers and sisters, leave them in the sea, you know, no no member of the Animal Kingdom never did a thing to me. That's why I don't eat red meat or white fish. So I think after a time, though, he, because I know when George Lopez, he was the last one who really asked him, what do you eat? And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I don't eat any red meat. I don't know if that's to say he was eating chicken or fish. I don't believe he was. I mean, because even at Paisley Park now. If you were to work there, you can't bring any meat into the premises. Oh, wow. Out of response. Yeah. Out of response of um, Prince, you know, no meat. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's how it always was. When he was there, even, there was, uh, they would have food. They would serve food, but it was no no meat. It was always, you know, vegan. Wow. Uh, um, I know he didn't probably eat meat, and I think that's because he, he did mention one time i know during uh, there was the cd for raven to the joy fantastic he has on like this outfit on and it wasn't leather and he was making a statement that you know hey you know what are we doing to the sheep you know he he mentioned it in some i don't remember the full detail of it but he did recall that there was no need to do that but they were they were both human so they 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 obviously had you know michael at kfc he's like so i think they both acknowledged to some degree, what they did with their body. It's not just the meat thing, but well, I think they still enjoy alcohol, obviously, wine and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But to moderation, they didn't seem to be the type to just... Then again, I don't know. There's really no way of me knowing that. I don't know if they, they probably did at some moments, um, especially in their early career, indulging a lot of drinking. But it's been rumored that Michael actually smoked cigarettes, too. That's what Paris said. Um, <laughs> yeah ah. i mean i don't think i'm one to believe by what? the way i did yeah that's what she said and, <laughs> and it could be true because i don't you know i don't know yeah. if he did then that's that's on him i don't personally right care what they decide to do with their bodies it's their trip in this life and if they want to do that they'll do that 
Um, but people hold on to just these images. The, the stereotypical, they would never, we don't know. There's no way of knowing that. And Wait, well, I, well the, we don't know, but the cigarette thing is interesting to me, given that Michael took pride in his voice in a lot of ways. I mean, same with Whitney Houston. She chain smoked all the time, and she was called the voice. Same with, right, Aretha, same with Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin smoked. <laughs> yeah. Nobody business. Well, so, a day or something, at least. Right. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I don't, we have these images that we see in our brains of them possibly never being able to do certain things, but I don't know enough for me to confirm or deny, and I don't care enough to say that it's bad, because I don't believe any of those things are particularly bad. They might be bad for your health or bad for moral reasons that you believe in, but there's really no <laughs> way of talking about it other than, yeah, that's probably what they did. You know, mm-hmm. you know. But I do think they valued the body, and they didn't just interact in situations that would be harmful to them. I think they did place value in where they're spending their time, what they're allowing themselves to endure. You know, I don't believe they just had a superficial, vain, careless attitude about themselves. I think they did want to better themselves, especially as they got older. They made better decisions. That comes with growth and responsibility, too. I know that. The Casio guy, he talked about how he saw Michael smoke weed once or twice. I think he smoked all the time. So hey, I, I'm down for it, Michael. Ain't no wrong. <laughs> I think he was like, "Yo, what's up?" Man? <laughs> <laughs> I think he, I think he, he, he smoked. He partook of the weed. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I know Prince did too. I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't know nothing for sure, but I think because there's several. Songs you think of a song like "Now" um, from the Bowie Experience, where he's like, "Light up, light up another one, dude." <laughs> yeah, we, we, have, we have to do episodes specifically about dispelling these images of Michael and Prince. And of course, these episodes are based on our opinion; they're not fact. Hopefully, we don't have to keep saying that. But these images of Prince being a bad boy and Michael being this good dude, they're nuances. And they're, you know, they had different elements of themselves. If Prince smoked weed, then he did. If Michael smoked weed, which I think Michael definitely smoked weed a lot (laughs) to to deal with a lot of stuff. You know, we gotta just, it's, it's what they did and they're not here to, Defend themselves. So again, we and can't. they would never confirm or deny it either. Even if they were, they would never be like, "Oh, yeah." I mean, they they still took that sense of privacy. You know, mm-hmm. you don't even know what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom or house or whatever. So, I mean, it's not a big deal. It's like cursing. It's like these things to me are on such small factors. We don't know why people do what they do most of the time, especially well, things like that. Well, let's get with the cursing thing, because if you look at how Prince cursed all the time at one point, Housequake is one of my favorite songs, and you look at what happened when he became a Jehovah's Witness, and even the Black Album, I actually don't like the Black Album. I agree with Prince on that. But (laughs) how many times he swore in that album? I found a copy of it when I was moving out of this house, and I asked people, is this yours? And people said, no, you can have it. And so that's how I found the Black Album, 
I had listened to it at some point before I even obtained a copy and I wasn't into it. But then I had this copy and it was one of the bootleg copies before Warner Brothers officially put it out. And I, I don't know what to do is because I'm certainly going to listen to it. And I eventually gave it to a guy in the record store. And but, he made about a thousand dollars off of it. He might have, <laughs> but I just no. really wasn't into it. I just, I think the song that was supposed to be about Nelson George, I think. Mm-hmm, Bob and George. Cindy, right. And Bob George and Cindy Crawford. And so, yeah, there were veiled comments about particular people and, you know, alter egos. And I'm just not into the alter ego Prince thing. And I just don't like when he's being vulgar for the sake of it, which I thought was the black. Eye. I just personally am not into that. I like his more jazz centered songs and the more spiritual stuff. And people think that Prince always talked about sex and Michael was always this good, clean person. But if you look at their catalogs, there was a variety of experiences they shared in their music. Even if you read Moonwalk, which we talked about, Michael talked about a range of his feelings. And so to limit that is disrespecting them. Words have meaning. Words have context in a spiritual sense. Words can be used to do good or harm. With cursing or swearing, Prince in particular at a point in his life, stopped swearing with Michael, a lot of people were surprised when he publicly started swearing or cursing. What does that mean for you? I think that cursing especially is funny with Prince because he almost would make you curse, even though he was trying to avoid cursing. So you think of a song like Muse of the Pharaoh, when he's like, you know, <laughs> if the number 13 is such a bad luck number when there's no such thing as luck and all the berries and talents and stars are all superstitions, what the? And he would be like, oh, oh, you know, he was always on the edge of it. And I don't think right. he really had a problem with it towards the end. But in the beginning, when he became a Jehovah's Witness, he wanted his concerts to be cleaned up and he knew he couldn't really do songs that had a lot of cursing, but he would still do sexual songs, that's, which was funny because oh, a yes. lot of a lot of people thought, oh, no, he ain't doing that no more. It's like, he really hasn't changed. Like, nope. You can't nope. say that. He still did shush. He still did scandalous. <laughs> he still did adore. He still did do me, baby. He still did songs that, you know, had that kind of edge. But mm-hmm. I think to him, you know, what made Prince a great performer in my opinion is his ability to arrange his songs according to how he felt and if he felt whatever he felt at the moment then it's like oh that's this is where he is right now you know this is he didn't shy away from even the songs that seemed to be shocking for him to still to perform so but with cursing he did that a lot in the earlier times like with the rainbow children the, the muse of the pharaoh is a good example but then there's also if you go a few a few years afterwards the planet earth with his own guitar mm-hmm. where he's talking about i love you baby and i wish you well i write a letter if i learn how to spell till that day you can go to <laughs> and then he says heaven you know the rest you know instead of saying hell so i think he was so funny with cursing i don't think he because he did i would say in the 90s he did curse a lot and yes. it was almost to the point of not being necessary to some of it um, in the 80s, he did, too, but it wasn't as 
as I mean, in the days of wild is a perfect example. Are oh, you sorry, motherfuckers up here? It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is where you started in the beginning. So in the nineties, he was, you know, there were a lot of cursing. And I think he was like, you know, not long after he was doing those songs, that's when he met Mary Graham. And, right. you know, it's like, you know, these words mean something. And I think he really, for whatever reason, it really uh, struck a chord with him. And the people who he, who he even knew, knew not to curse around him. Um, because <laughs> I was reading a story with Mark Anthony where he hung out with Prince and apparently they were very friendly. And at one time, Mark Anthony, because he, he from New York, so he was like, you know, I just curse all the time. But I had to be careful around Prince because he would be like, my makeup would fall off if you keep cursing. You know, he, he, he really didn't like cursing. He even had a swear jar. So it was almost as if to him, I mean, but it's funny because the last two albums that he made, he did curse. While he may have bleeped out the curse, it's there. And then when he would perform A Thousand Hugs and Kisses, he would say the lyric, you know, life can be such a bitch sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. whereas in the album it's kind of silenced. <laughs> I always, I, I'll never find it or funny how Prince viewed cursing towards the end because he seemed to be so conflicted, but yet he did value words, obviously. He just didn't say anything. And going back to the topic, the sacredness of words, I believe him and Michael, with Michael, you know, Michael cursed. I don't know why people were shocked that Michael cursed. (laughs) Michael didn't curse. He cursed in his albums. He had no problem. And from what Paris and Prince says, you know, Michael, he, he would go on a rant and just start going off calling people by me and and i don't believe prince didn't even do that i believe he did that too because that's what that's just language that's how language is and if you're angry at somebody or if you're going off on someone it ain't hard to just call somebody a name it's just easy (laughs) it's convenient and whether they do it in the public is a different story because you don't want the narrative to be like oh prince was seen you know, because then at a certain age, for whatever reason, for certain people saying certain words, it's like, oh, you shouldn't say that. And then again, they were both born in 1958. So they had, mm-hmm. I, in my opinion, when you're that kind of that, they may not mean anything uh, deeper than the surface, but I just feel they had morals around certain things. They definitely value what they said and they wouldn't probably say it around different people, especially if you still right. have to perform. Yeah, that's what I think about them cursing. Or in particular, how they valued words and what they would do, how they lived, what they decided to even talk about. I mean, you mentioned earlier about Michael when he was with Quincy Jones and, you know, his posture. I think overall, Michael was just media trained. He knew Mm -hmm. he didn't want people seeing him acting a certain way to be manipulated. Not all the time. Okay, I should say (laughs) that's not all the time he was like that. But for the most part. He seemed to be very aware of the cameras. Prince, too. So they didn't say anything that could possibly be misconstrued. I think with Prince, it may not have even just been the Jehovah's Witness thing. I don't know. But I know people hold themselves accountable for swearing. Some people, that's they say, well, I use some words too much, so I'm going to hold myself to not use it. I, I don't know if that was Prince's case, but mm-hmm. 
I think he considered, oh, there might be kids at the show or something, even though there have always been kids at his shows. So I wonder right, what always. this was. Right. Well, the context, I guess he was older and he didn't want. But I don't know. I don't know. It was weird that he was like that. That's what I'm saying. Didn't Chris Tucker do the same thing? Chris Tucker. Yeah, I believe he did. Mm-hmm. He stopped cursing at his show. And, <laughs> I mean, I get it to a degree. But then again, I don't because cursing, especially how young people use cursing now, mm-hmm. it's like they, they wouldn't eat. It's almost, <clears throat> excuse me, it's almost like he's expecting the younger people to not expect him to curse because he's a certain age. Because certainly people under 57 are cursing. That's just not uncommon. <laughs> they may not curse as, as much as you did at a certain time in their songs, but in everyday conversation, they certainly are. So the fact that he, was just like no, and then at the same time he wouldn't curse, but he's more than willing to sing a song like "Shush," <laughs> where he's like, "I'm gonna make you scream my name, scream my name," you know. It's like, <laughs> or even it's, uh, it's funny how he saw certain songs as not being as sexual because he probably would say, "Oh, well, that's not what I mean. I'm just saying this. I don't mean that." <laughs> when <laughs> You would get the idea that that's what he means. I mean, he's, right. he's doing these moves with his body. It's like, that's probably what you mean. But um, but if he thought of sexuality as being one of the highest forms of spirituality, his response would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw a performance when he did or shush, and it was as if he was just performing, because I've seen several performances of that song. There's one I have in mind where he's just singing it, but he's not acting it out like he has in other performances. Mm-hmm. And so when he goes, am I getting you hot? He just sings it. It's like he's not making any winks like he has in other performances. And he's just kind of in this other place where it looked like he wasn't feeling it necessarily, but it was part of the set list. And I wonder if that was a point where he was having a dilemma, but he's just performing it. I don't know. That's a good point, because sometimes you can clearly see he's just acting it out. And he's just, you know, it's a song and, you know, he's just doing it for the sake of, okay, this is my job. I'm here to perform. This is what they want. Here it is. Um, But then there are other moments where you can clearly see there's it's probably directed with someone in mind or. Mm-hmm. he wants and, and and nothing is wrong with any of these things i'm just i only mentioned it because it's funny how cursing was the thing that was like no i can never you know use a curse word but then people coming to my performance because i think when a lot of people saw prince live or if anyone was to watch a video of him performing there is an element of sexuality that's expressed and it's done in a way that you know is is cool because it's not necessarily like I mean, I guess it's all perception, but it's still something. And then especially seeing how when people think of Prince, they always mention that aspect of him. Like, oh, he's the unicorn, sexual, mysterious, blah, blah, blah. So when he does a song like that, I mean, I say, shush, do me, baby. But there are so many other examples of even songs of recent nature that he would do that had that kind of element. I was like, oh, he's really, you know, he's, you know, he's going there. I'm always going to go with Revelation. Right, Revelation. That's the one I was thinking about. <laughs> you want to mix the spirituality with the sexuality? That's mm-hmm. Or When She Comes. <laughs> well, that's interesting you say that because I didn't get anything sexual out of that song. 
No, I don't. There's nothing sexual about it, but the way he used, he has another example of here, here I come that he wrote for Bria Valente. And there's no other way you can look, listen to that song and not know what he was talking about. Cause right. the song is called here I come and she's talking about singing in the shower or going in the shower and all these other things. So right. I don't, I think it's just interesting to me how he didn't mind. And it's, it's like you said, it's probably because he saw sexuality and spirituality as the same in essence. So it wasn't anything wrong about it, but cursing was the thing that he embodied to be, the worst thing you could do. And, but then I don't know if it was completely, I don't think, he, I know he had the swear, the swear jar when he first started being like that, like around the celebration. But when he met Kendrick Lamar, and I'm not even suggesting that Kendrick Lamar stopped cursing in his presence. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He probably got a lot of people didn't know that about him. So that's another funny thing is that a lot of people are like, oh, he's really big on cursing. It's not like people, that was a common knowledge. He really started to get that out there, but. I mean, even in the George Lopez interview, he's like, oh, if I can stop swearing, everybody can stop swearing. Ah. I, don't think people, I don't think people were really like, you know, care too much about it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's amazing how people, they have an order or a structure or something. They, they value something sacred, so they'll go out their way to maintain that. And mm-hmm. since that meant something to him, that's what he did. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I I think that shows the importance of words. If he's able to change around lyrics or omit lyrics and still have the same imagery or people go directly to the same thoughts, that shows the power of words in how we create scenarios for ourselves. His desire to not swear or curse and have other people not do it shows how much in Prince's perspective I'm guessing that it's used so much in his environment he, he said uh, swear jar you say anything yeah. you're gonna have to put a corner in here <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he and again me. words can be used for good or evil it's all about perspective it's all about intent yeah it's totally, you're totally right. And again, I think if you make that world for yourself, and that's why I don't have a problem with people who, if they create a world for themselves where they're able to just be free from something because they just don't like it for whatever reason and it doesn't, and it actually makes them feel better, then okay, cool. You know, that's, if that's what you need to do to help you navigate this life, it's just interesting. People see things totally different when mm-hmm. when they grow older and i think also is the fact that that was closely associated to his sexual days and he right. was trying not to be that you know i mean he was the guy who would go on stage with bikini underwear you know i I love the fact that he would say that and stare like we used to go on a, we used to go on stage in our underwear you know but he said we changed up we got a brand new beat i think he was coming to terms because at first you know i'm gonna just say in 2002, when he started really being on the internet with the music club and when he was just present online, he was going out of his way to tell people not only about Jehovah, but basically that if he was going to do anything old, it was going to fit where he sounded. So what did he do? He he would take out the curse words. He would place us, uh, you know, with the MPG audio shows, which are now 
pretty easy to find now, sadly. Not sadly, because it's pretty good to listen to, but you listen to, he would do these radio shows where he's, you know, it's a mix of songs. A lot of them were his, and then he would have segues, and he would play mm-hmm. old stuff. So, I mean, I imagine hearing it for the first time was pretty cool, because here you are listening to stuff that's never been released. He would play on old performances. A lot of those performances had curse words, but he would just reverse it. <laughs> so uh, you're yeah. listening to him, and then you're like, lit, 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 lit. Like, <laughs> he didn't allow you to hear it. He would take away, like, no, I don't want you, you know, or even the curse words he would replace. He even, again, I mentioned some of the songs, but there are even songs as on 3121 where he does that, where right. he'll rhyme a word that's close to it, but it's not it. So I don't know if, I, I just find that so funny. And I think he was one of those musicians that was his goal. His goal is to inspire. He don't want people to see this. If that became, if cursing is the embodiment of evil for me, if it, if it's that big of a deal, then I'm not going to do it. Right. And I'm not going to let anyone hear it. And then he would say, if you have a problem with it, that says more about you than it does about me. <laughs> so that's how he navigated with it. It just displays to to me how humans have a way of controlling the narrative. In some capacity, even if it doesn't seem like they have any control, they'll try to make sure they abide by whatever principle they choose to validate. Speaking of 3121, I wanted to get your views on Black Sweat, but that's a whole other episode. Ooh, <laughs> that's a whole other one. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to break your episodes down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Or it could be the next one. Who knows? But yeah, I think this conversation is really interesting about language, about how we view language, what makes language sacred, what makes it not sacred. It's just all fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole, the whole thing is, is fascinating, but words. No, it's, it's, it's totally and how true. We communicate, yeah. Really fascinating. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was pretty in-depth and nuanced hopefully you thought so as well and if you didn't let us know why (laughs) and we'd love to hear comments regardless of what you think and let it be a conversation we have and we can communicate all in love thank you so much for listening to another episode of music and we have a wonderful day thank you